Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Hey everyone, Jeremy Scheinwald here with another Smart People Should Build Things Venture for America podcast. I want to start the show with a big thanks to my uh, my good friend Phil Pinsky for referring today's guest our way. Phil is the co-host of Reclaimed Audio, a show for makers who make the most of recycled products. The discussion on the show often centers around the human processes of making things, and the panel is always philosophical but also hilarious. They have uh, tremendous chemistry. Maybe they should, they should inspire me to get a panel myself. Um, check out Reclaimed Audio. And um, yeah, so thanks again to Phil for suggesting Ben Ueda as a guest. In doing my research on Ben, I saw this vast and fascinating career, um, but was what was also really interesting to me was how thoughtfully and personally driven his career was. Ben graduated from Cornell with with a with a with two degrees, a master's degree as well in architecture, and he started his own firm immediately, specifically to ensure that he had autonomy in his creative vision. Uh, while he was designing multi-million dollar energy efficient homes at his firm, Zero Energy Design, he also co-launched Free Green, a site that made energy efficient house plans just that, free and thus accessible to the masses. After selling Free Green, Ben turned his attention to a similar problem. He wanted to find a novel way to compete with IKEA, making home furnishings accessible and cheap. And he found a very clever and creative way, which was um, creating a, a YouTube channel and creating Homemade Modern, uh, where he shows you how to make designs that are incredibly creative, that are achievable to the newcomer. People like me, I, I make a vow to create a bucket stool on the show, um, and we'll do so soon, and we'll follow up with Ben. Um, go to Homemade Modern and watch the videos. They are compulsively watchable and be inspired to build or just watch more and more. Um, and when Ben isn't building his own firm or firms, I should say, he's an angel investor and he's an advisor to startups and he's a real estate developer as well. He gives, um, he teaches college classes at Northeastern. Um, he gave a popular TED Talk. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm almost exhausted by the intro, and he's actually living these things. I'm not sure where Ben finds his stamina. He builds and builds and builds, and um, who better to have on the Smart People Should Build Things podcast than Ben Ueda? A word about why we're here, Venture for America, VFA. It's a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and thus help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and support our work, you can visit VentureForAmerica.org. A little bit about me. I launched the Mission Driven Group many moons ago. You can check out my firm at missiondrivengroup.com. And please remember to like our show on iTunes and to subscribe as well. And you can follow me I'm a, on Twitter at uh, Jeremy Scheinwald. I am not the most prolific poster. Maybe that's appealing. Um, and now, uh, enough about me, enough of a wind up here. This might have been the longest one we've done yet. Uh, let's move on to what I thought was a, a fascinating show, immediately one of my favorites, with a very thoughtful Ben Ueda. 
Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Ben, thanks so much for being here. Happy to be here. And thanks to, to our friend uh, Phil Pinsky of Reclaimed Audio for connecting us. That's, uh, it's a show I love. You were on, I think, I think it was episode 44, um, talking about the Xerox paradox. I'll leave that as a teaser, but it was a lot of fun to listen to. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun time guest hosting. Uh, those guys are great. And uh, I think I'm going to see them soon, actually. I, I feel like when I listen to them, they've got such a good chemistry. I feel like it's, it's almost like the... NFL pregame show of podcasts like those three guys they laugh the whole time they have a great time and and uh, they sort of make it enjoyable for you they feel like you feel like you're part of their club so to speak it's really interesting in the makerspace the podcasts I think are a relatively new thing uh, but they're basically just taking shop talk and making it digital Mm -hmm. no it's a lot of fun I I definitely advise people uh, check it out Um, so let's talk about let's talk about you more than reclaimed audio here Um, as much as we like those guys so I, it seems like to me, like from uh, from listening to your uh, to your your TED talk, and I would advise people uh, Google Ben and, and check out his TED talk. It's in, it's interesting as tech, TED talks are. Uh, <laughs> you you know you 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 talk about how um, challenging childhood circumstances led to uh, led you to design. Tell us about those those circumstances and how design your interest in design awakened. Well, let's let's uh, frame challenging because that wasn't exactly working in a coal mine or uh, <laughs> didn't have to. Uh, be a stowaway on a, on a ship to get here. Um, we grew up in pretty modest economic means. Uh, all four of us kids were, were sharing a room for a long time. Um, I'm still amazed to this day at how my parents sort of raised four kids on uh, you know about $50,000 a year or so in Southern California. Um, but I think what it, what it did create or what it did sort of uh, provide the opportunity to do was to be a little bit more resourceful um, so some of my favorite books growing up were like Swiss Family Robinson, My Side of the Mountain. And there were these stories of where there was sort of necessity was driving the need to innovate and make stuff. Um, I think we sort of read those books and took that same sort of approach. So it wasn't that, oh, we turned to design as a way to sort of like make knockoffs of things. It was just seen as like, well, we have limited o- options financially, but we still have time. Uh, we still had a yard, and uh, let's uh, knock down some sticks and start making stuff. So, well, yeah. What were some of those projects that you made? Now, now when you knock down some sticks, I'm imagining you being the mischievous kid who's like blowing stuff up in the backyard. And his parents are like, "Oh no, Ben, not again!" But what, what were the projects? Well, I did. I did blow stuff up um, <laughs> unintentionally. So, I think when I was about eleven or twelve, I wanted to make a sword. Um, so I did my research. I found out that if you could get uh, that leaf springs from a, from a car suspension uh, ha- were roughly the right type of metal. I researched into how to build a, a forge with sort of a hair dryers to sort of pump the air in. I used cinder blocks and I built it right onto my parents' concrete patio. Now, it got plenty hot. I was pounding out the, the metal, but I forgot that there might be moisture trapped into the, the concrete patio and so sure enough the moisture got super hot it expanded and blew a big hole in the 
the patio, which consequently showered sparks <laughs> everywhere. No major injuries, but little parts of the yard uh, certainly got caught on fire. Do you get sent to your room for catching your porch on fire? No. no. There, there was no sort of punitive uh, <laughs> uh, repercussions. It was more just sort of, okay, now we need more safety equipment and maybe blacksmithing in the suburban backyard isn't the best idea. I think I can do most of the podcast on this incident. Like, you're like, yeah, you know, I did my research. I'm like, like this is pre-internet. Were you like going to the library with a book? Exactly. No, we, we would do that. And it was... It was <laughs> like it, it's amazing. It, w- it was interesting, but it also... It made it feel like because the information was less accessible, you felt like you were more on this adventure. And it also made it, uh, uh, I felt like, I think a little bit more rewarding. But I think the way in terms of if you were to look at the content I was consuming back then as a kid and the sort of path to doing it, it would be something where I'd read something about like, Robinson Crusoe or Swiss Family Robinson. And those would sort of present sort of innovation and design as a narrative. Another examples would be like a biography of George Washington Carver or Ben Franklin. So you sort of hear it in the context of lifestyle or entertainment. Then I'd be like, well, I want to do that. And then you'd go and do the research for the sort of how-to books and the sort of specific mm. technical instruction. So if we were looking at that in sort of modern terms, it's the sort of narrative and entertainment version where it's sort of anecdotally placed often comes first. And then that creates the motivation to go and do the deep, dive into the technical or instructional information. And so clearly that, that spirit stuck with you. Um, you know, you went to Cornell, earned a bachelor's in, and, and a master's degree in architecture. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you started college at the age of 21. Was was the delay because you were working hard and saving up to college or for college? Or was it like, you know, I, I think you said you did construction. We talked a little bit beforehand. Was it like, you know, I just, I love this opportunity to start building stuff right away and um, I'm going to just build away. Well, neither one of my parents went to college. Um, and so there was never any sort of mm, direct sort of uh, push to be focused in that way. I did well in high school, um, but I just never really thought of it as an, as a, as a direct option. <clears throat> as a given, it wasn't like you grew up like you're going to college. Right. So right. there was not like a direct sort of, okay, after high school, you'll go to college. Um, so I never took the SATs. I, th- I didn't think I, t- I didn't take the SATs until I was 20. And, uh, I always thought that sort of academics were, were fine. You know, I got decent grades. I showed up to class. I, I didn't mind it, but I didn't really see it as a direct path to anything. Cause there wasn't a lot of sort of direct, uh, sort of peers that I saw where that, where a college education had led to a demonstratively awesome lifestyle. Hmm. Um, I think at the time, the thing I was that I thought I was best at is I used to compete in uh, karate and martial arts tournaments. Um, and I did quite well in those, won a lot of uh, uh, tournaments and things like that. And so I think at that time, I just assumed that this is what I was best at. And it's not because I necessarily loved martial arts so far so much. It's more that I loved being good at something. And if that's the thing at that time that I thought I was best at, so that's the thing that I sort of assumed would become my identity. Uh, it wasn't until... I uh, realized that as a career, um, you know, I was traveling around. I had some sponsorships and stuff like that, was winning a lot of competitions, but not exactly making any money. Um, Then I sort of realized that, well, I should at least try community college or something like that. Took some courses at Santa Barbara Community College, realized that, oh, wait, this actually is somewhat easy for me. And then took the SATs around 20, did well on those. So then I could start considering, you know, which universities I wanted to go to. 
but it was yeah it was a very sort of roundabout way to to academia and you know you talked about this um again we talked before you know about how kind of you got there and maybe you were a little more mature and you had some experience building things and you were a little bit of a skeptic when you arrived I, th- I think there was sort of an advantage of being a 21 year old freshman i mean i lived in i spent about six months living in italy um sort of working on a on a drawing portfolio before i went to cornell uh, so I was definitely at probably I wouldn't say mature. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> still a still might be a, a not a given, um, but I think I had more life experience, and I knew studying something as specific as as architecture in particular. I think that was a huge advantage. If you're doing a uh, an undergraduate program that's already geared towards a specific profession like architecture, that's a pretty daunting uh, task for an 18 year old to, to sort of know that that's what they want to do. Um, so I think in particular with that type of specific educational focus, uh, sort of waiting until I was 21, uh, had a lot of benefits. And when I arrived there, I'd already lived on my own. I'd already, you know, paid my own bills and sort of taken care of it. So it was all about just sort of focusing on academics. I could take way more credits, I think, than, than my sort of contemporary students, simply because I was less concerned with the the sort of craziness of suddenly not being supervised and having access to parties and stuff like that. So you were you were a student at twenty one. By twenty seven, you were you were a professor at Cornell. Yeah. Um, you know, do you do you have any trick for fostering that kind of you know skepticism in your in your own class, trying to get people to not take your your lessons for granted the same way you came in as a as a as a skeptic? Yeah, I tried to think about like what. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was easier, I think, for me because uh, I was so recently a student. And so, of course, I had the little list of things that, well, here's the classes that none of the students take seriously. This is why. Here's the ones they think are easy. Here's the ones they think are, like, challenging in a great way. And here are the ones that we think are unnecessarily tedious relative to the amount of sort of uh, stimulus that we're getting out of it. Um, So certainly being close to the situation uh, gave me some advantages. But I think the... The thing that I was particularly interested in why I got into teaching is that at that time, sustainable design and architecture, there was, there was no dedicated classes to it at, in Cornell's Department of Architecture. So here it is, the number one rated architecture program for undergrads in the country. Um, and there was no sort of all the classes relating to sustainability or renewable energy. They're all taught as technical challenges. Oh, here's how you make a building use less energy. Here's how you put windows on the south side, not the north side all these technical things, but they didn't speak to the actual cultural challenge of sustainability. And obviously, if you thought of architecture simply as the technology of materials, that's a very limited way to do it. So I was really excited to bring, I think, the first class that actually discussed sustainability as a as a, as a theory for design, not just as a series of technical prescriptions. So I mean, sustainability, how did it become such a focus of yours? And I, I know that the you know, maybe the manifestation of that focus was your competition in the Solar Decathlon, which which plays prominently in your developmental story. Maybe you can tell us about the Solar Decathlon. But w- like, there are lots of architects out there. Why is Ben the the one who picked up that mantle early? Well, I, I I don't associate any individual authorship with it. I think it's just the most obvious goal that we should be able right. to all agree on. Um, and I don't say that from like a really harsh uh, judging sort of perspective on people that would be sort of climate deniers. Like I, in some ways, I f- think it's useful to be empathetic of people that are denying this sort of obvious because just hammering them over and over again isn't going to really get us anywhere. 
uh, I think for me and my uh, uh, classmates at the time that were all interested in this, it was, I think that there's part of sort of the youth culture of wanting to have your issue that's meaningful of the time. And this was the one that we could pretty much get students from every walk of life, from engineering departments to business departments uh, to architecture and design and art, all sort of saying, oh, here's something we can all participate in. There's room for everyone to play in, and we all feel like this is an important thing. So from there, uh, we sort of looked for a vehicle for how we could sort of take all this interest and put it in towards or towards some sort of project that we could all work on. And we discovered this really awesome competition called the Solar Decathlon, which was sponsored by the U.S. Department of Energy. We were the only student-led team in the 2005 competition, and we designed and built a completely solar-powered, uh, off-the-grid, 700-square-foot house. And... So you, you're the only student, and you guys came in second, is that right? Yes, we came and in second. What happens when you come in second? <laughs> what if, you, know, you, you come in second in the competition and, you well, know. We spent about two and a half years designing, researching, and fundraising, because we had to fund this this project as well. The, the school helped us out a little bit, but we had to go and raise private sponsors outside of, of Cornell as well. Uh, we worked with, uh, with a lot of different uh, private companies, we worked with GE, um, which provided the solar panels, and we were able to work with their sort of technical teams and provide research back and forth. So funny means it got built. Yeah. 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 So we built it uh, on campus at Cornell, shipped it all the way from Ithaca, New York, to Washington, D.C., uh, got to see the axle on the trailer break just as we were starting to leave, had to jack the whole house up, cut away the old axle, re-weld the new one on, and then ship it back down. And shipping a house is not easy. Uh, it was about uh, 14 feet wide or something like that. So we really had to plan out the, the path carefully. And hmm. uh, it was a great, I think for, for an architecture student, it was a great introduction to logistical challenges and how, how, how much can get lost in going from something theoretical or even a virtual computer model to the sort of logistics of actually putting materials together, getting it to a specific place on time. So that that sort of uh, the combination of both the the technical research we did into renewable energy and the sort of logistical experiences that we had in trying to pull off this very difficult task that prepared my sort of uh, future business partners and I for sort of uh, feeling like we were ready to start an architecture firm. Right. So, I mean, to me, like when I was doing my research on you, I should digress and say my sister and brother-in-law are both architects, and I know how long the apprenticeship is in architecture from their experience. And I know that that's not, al not always true. Um, but, you know, I was like shocked that you started a firm right out of, uh, right out of Cornell, you and, you and several friends. And um, I mean, you know, considering the investment in your education, time, money, like, didn't that seem like a, like a huge risk at that point um, when you're starting something? And also because Presumably, it would be very hard to get something built if you're if you're new at something. Like people kind of want something proven if they're, you know, if they're if they're if they're investing their money in some ways their life in a in a home. I, I, risk is an interesting concept, right? Because that's what a lot of people said to me at the time. Well, why are you risking this? Because you know you have you don't have a lot of experience. You're right out of college. You should you should work for somebody else. But to me, I, I didn't think of the risk that way. The risk to me was always time. Uh, even when I didn't have uh, any income or, or, or 
financial resources. To me, what would be risky would be spending a lot of money on education for a in a field that wouldn't be my most lucrative option, and then not actually embracing that field or that non-lucrative option, instead doing creative stuff for somebody else's sort of authorship. So to me, the risky thing was working for somebody else in some other crappy architecture firm for 10 years for a paycheck, and then trying to start my own thing. So to me, risking that 10 years, not for a large amount of money, is the risky thing. So also, if you're gonna take economic risk at any point in your life, I highly suggest doing it before you have a lot of financially dependent people on you, and it's easier to do the younger you are. And in college, you're already kind of used to living scrappy and on top ramen and all these sort of things. So if you're going to take risk, probably the most appropriate time. Couldn't have could have been said better. I'm not supposed to, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to cheerlead here as the, as, the, as the interviewer, but could not have been said better. I think I went through that very experience myself, actually, where I did a year of banking and looked around and was like, I could just be spending this time growing a business instead of being here. Um, so, but still, you know, so I, I want to take on the unproven part. And it's not like I'm, I'm questioning it, but from a, a perspective of someone who's going to drop $3 million on a home, um, how did you, how did you market yourself as, hey, you should have your confidence in me and a couple of my friends who just graduated from Cornell to build this home versus any other firm. Right. So I would tell anyone that's young and entering a highly competitive field, whether it be film or fashion or architecture or something like this, uh, I would say look at the obvious thing that most people aren't doing. And so in my case, uh, starting an architecture firm with some very talented uh, co-founders, we looked at what are what are our competitors that have way more experience than us not doing? And at the time, what they were not doing is really taking advantage. This is 2006. Uh, they weren't really taking advantage of search engine optimization. So a lot of architecture firms in 2006, even really famous, well-known, super professional ones, they all had these flash graphic, slow loading website intros. So you'd go to this architecture website and then you'd get this loading signal and then it would just be these moving graphics and this really artistic sliding lines and very abstract designer porn kind of stuff. None of which, none of which is like indexable onto search engines. So here architects were taking the greatest innovation in terms of the internet for sharing information and making as a way to display moving portfolio images. And so we said, okay, we're going to have a website that's just loaded with search terms about solar-powered housing and how to make your home more efficient and basically did content marketing. But since very few people were doing it, we couldn't actually believe how well it worked because we're like, this is so obvious for anyone outside of, of architecture. But architecture was so driven by an internal discourse and it's uh, so many of the people doing it were sort of motivated by sort of peer recognition, uh, trying to get published in the right magazines, trying to get a tenure track teaching position. So you're thinking about this, this set of value systems that was specific to the industry and discipline, but not necessarily practical for commerce or business outside of it. So we simply made a very search competitive website and we knew that if we, our conversion rate might be way lower than most architecture firms in terms of the number of people that come to the website versus end up hiring us. But we knew if we did basic search engine stuff, we'd get a lot more of those people. 
So you start to have success. You start to design these these multi-million dollar homes. And, and you know, again, for those who don't know this, architecture is actually notoriously underpaid as a profession. So you're having some financial success. And um, you kind of describe yourself maybe somewhat pejoratively as, as, as building, quote, hybrid escalades and finding that to be, you know, uh, unsatisfactory. Like, where was, why were you unsatisfied with building, you know, I mean, I looked at them, beautiful, um, sustainable homes for at the $3 million price point. So it it wasn't unsatisfied because it was was a great experience and I learned a ton from it. But we were designing, you know, zero energy homes that produced as much energy as they used, uh, really well-designed homes that got won design awards, got published in magazines. This is all for my architecture firm, Zero Energy Design. Um, It was going great and we were learning, but... We, we didn't see a path out of that pattern, right? We saw a path that started to emerge where success was getting defined by getting increasingly more prestigious uh, clients and commissions. And so that was nice, but there was, no, there was no breakaway thing. There was no sort of thing that seemed like it could emerge out of that that would be greater than just better. Um, so it wasn't so much that I disliked doing that. It's just I didn't see... Uh, an end goal that was admirable because if you're if you're only providing sustainable technology and things to the one percent of one percent you're you're not really changing the world and you're not really having a sustainable impact you're technologically integrating at the high end but you're not really culturally integrating to the mass market so so the response to that is is you know while you're working at zero energy design you 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 launch Free green. I mean, is, is that is that effectively your response to that problem that you're seeing? Yes. So what we sort of realized is that it was a it wasn't a design uh, problem. We had we had all the sort of experience to design affordable, energy efficient houses. It was a business model challenge. We were we had a service professional business model that did custom work, and it takes just as long to design a uh, affordable energy efficient house as it does a expensive energy house. So when you have options, you're going to take the expensive one because you make more money per hour spent on it. Um, And yes, we did a lot of pro bono work and stuff like that. So it was realizing that the service professional business model was pushing us this way, even though we had the ability to actually design, uh, uh, produce design documents that would meet the sort of broader target audience. So from then we started looking, well, what's the business model for, because custom obviously isn't it, for reaching that. Now, the one that a lot of architects uh, have tried is prefab housing or modular housing. So they become a housing manufacturer. We immediately looked at that model and said, you need so much capital to do that. So instead we said, if you're going to spread design, spreading it at the point of a building that then gets shipped around, (laughs) cumbersome, capital intensive. Spreading design while it's its most portable would mean spreading it while it's still drawings or 3D models or media. So let's spread design while it's its easiest to spread, which would be media. So we basically created a design firm that published affordable, energy-efficient designs as a type of media and then monetized it as a type of marketing. Well, so what's interesting in, in you designing this, this um, you know, creating a new design firm is that it's it's a real departure for you professionally. Like you went and you you raised venture capital, 
And that comes with a whole bunch of new responsibilities, you know, responding to investor demands and, and um, you know, projections and all sorts of stuff like that. that. I don't know if you started with projections when you guys started your, started your started zero energy design. Um, but, uh, you know, with less accountability to others, like when I started my own business, I can assure you there are no projections, even though I'm an MBA. Um, you know, you, it's just a totally different experience. I mean, just tell me about the about the. Was there any culture shock or in in starting a business that by necessity engaged others? So I had a business partner in this project, uh, a guy named Dave Wax, who was awesome, uh, and he, he was an MBA at Cornell when I was doing my uh, graduate degree in architecture. Um, so he sort of shepherded me through that sort of process. But we created a business plan that won a bunch of uh, Ivy League business plan competitions, and which sort of got us to sort of uh, attention. Uh, for a, a bunch of investors. Um, and so we would talk about that. I had no knowledge of this whatsoever. I only knew about design and then like manual labor. So I had a very, very <laughs> limited uh, uh, list of expertise. So it was good though, I think for both of us, because I'd always make him explain these things in sort of layman's terms. Um, but yeah, so we, we raised a bunch of money and very quickly realized that that did change sort of expectations. We raised just under a, a million dollars. Um, this was in sort of late 2006, uh, early 2007. And I think like many other people that were raising money for a dot-com idea at that time, we thought we were really, really smart. Like people are giving us, <laughs> wait, they think this idea that I came up with is worth millions of dollars based on our valuation? And we just we just came up with it and then made like a 20-slide PowerPoint deck and then they're like, here's almost a million dollars that sort of momentum I think was was the biggest challenge of sort of feeling wow we have all this now we have to grow super super fast and you start I think at that point designing the company for the expected end goal not necessarily for what the next step should have been so is the, is the, I mean obviously if you've got a venture back company the, the expected end goal is a sale I mean is that is that you know anathema to you who's like very much a, a I don't know. Sales is an athlete. You're saying designing it for that. I mean, does that connect with your approach, which is like creative and and it's it's the integrity of design? And I mean, you started your own firm right away out of school because you wanted to see your own vision forward. Did those two things clash? Uh, I, I really didn't have any expectations for what the end goal would be at that time. For, the way I looked at it is that I've always wanted to just design things that I thought were cool and also important. Um, and at the time, I realized that there was a business model block to doing this in a traditional architecture firm, is that I couldn't design buildings that my parents could have afforded living in. And that always sort of bugs me, is how can I say that I'm designing something that's good for the planet, that's ethical and all these things, but my own family couldn't have afforded to live in any of them. So for me, I didn't look at the startup or free green as the goal to have this big company. I looked at it, this is something that hasn't really been tried that could provide access to the type of autonomous design that I want to do. So for me, it was just trying to find that sort of uh, that lifestyle and that sort of business model that would let me design with autonomy and at the same time design things that I thought were important. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So Free Green has its ups and downs. 
um, you you know your CEO chooses to move on at some point. Um, you know, it's ultimately sold, and you avoid what you called an L. You know, you don't have that 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 L. You know, one in your loss column. Um, was was frequently ahead of its time. Um, you know, could the outcome if it if you launched it now or you know if you launched it now, could you think you could have a different outcome? Um, well, we launched a so what free green was supposed to be and well what, what it was was is we provided affordable blueprints or construction documents for homes uh, we very quickly became one of the largest supplier of home designs in the country and rather than selling blueprints for houses we actually gave them away for free and then sold advertising into it uh, this also uh, was great because a lot of People know some products in their homes, like they might know the appliances or the countertops or things like that, but very few people know the brand of insulation of their homes or the brand of uh, a furnace. So we were able to create sort of a, an advertising uh, product that was great for those types of things. It also impacted energy performance and so on. Um, we started this, th this business that was dependent on advertising from the construction industry we really got it launched in 2007, and then, of course, 2008 happens. Right. And so there was, like, no advertising money whatsoever. Um, and we were also a new type of advertising product. So that became the challenge. But the lesson I took out of that was, again, it was I thought I was creating autonomy by raising a bunch of money and starting this new type of business. But I was really just creating different dependencies. Instead of individual mm. clients, I was now relying on brands as clients. And I was also relying on uh, the sort of approval of the uh, investor and board of people that had put money into the, the company and deservedly had their say in it. So I wasn't really getting rid of, uh, of masters. I was just switching out who my sort of masters were. Mm -hmm. You called Free Green, quote, a slog. Was there... Was there an emotional toll on you at all by the time you know Free Green was 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 sold? I mean, you were you seem to be you know a real serial entrepreneur. We'll get to homemade modern in a second. I think you're already working on that. Like, it, I feel like you have this incredible wellspring of energy. I mean, were, was there anything that was exhausting about it? Yeah, I th I th and I, th I would say what hmm. I think with a lot of startups that I've been a part of, I've seen what I call the slog, uh, and it's. Often because when you start a, a startup that gets interest and has a, a lot of options for investment, you feel like you're, you know, you got a bunch of people flattering you. You got a bunch of people telling you that they want to give you money because your ideas that you haven't even really started working on seriously yet are really great and super valuable. <laughs> so, of course, you just feel this. You want to tell all your friends about how we have this meeting and this meeting and these people are interested and they want us. And that sort of uh it it becomes its own sort of uh culture and sort of ecosystem and uh, the tension's very addicting it feels great and all these things then six months later you realize oh crap we have all these expectations we have to build this massive company most of us don't have the full experience of having done this before um and there's a lot of pressure and expectations then some couple external things happens maybe you lose a co-founder or in our case, the market just completely uh, tanks with a specific emphasis on tanking around our specific industry. Um, if you're if you're here in the studio, you can see Ben kind of wincing as he says, "Our industry." Right. So you you realize one you 
you weren't as smart as you thought you, you were, that people are no longer interested in you when they see that it isn't a home run or such a clear path to obvious success. And the same people that were, were, were begging to sort of meet with you and get your attention before are now not interested uh, whatsoever. Um, and I think, you know, at that point, sort of, uh, you know, seeing also the disinterest in your own team when they sort of realized this isn't going to be the home run uh, that we originally thought it was and trying to still sort of stay motivated and push through that to the point where you don't just abandon ship. You still package up the company, make it something useful so somebody would be interested in acquiring it. Uh, I think that's a... Uh, I think it was really great, but it was also, it was pretty exhausting. Um, but again, it's all the things that uh, if you get through it relatively unscathed, you don't, you know, mortgage away your entire financial future by doing it. Um, then I think it's ult- ultimately a very rewarding experience. And it makes you all the more appreciative for, for uh, I think it was the point where I stopped thinking of startups as cool and I started to think of businesses as cool. Hmm. So that I want to quickly digress then, jump to where we are now, because you're you're now an angel investor, um, and you advise some startups, and I mean, how does that experience where you know you went through that yourself and you saw this run up and then the bottom fall out due to some circumstances? Some would argue I'd be one of them. Others on our <laughs> podcast are not. I, I'm, I'm yet to hear anyone shout "bubble" as loudly as I do. Um, you know, how does this? Do you feel like it's the same thing right now? Are you waiting for the bottom to, to fall out? And how do you advise your firms? I, I think the mistake is to look at it as this overriding thing, right? So I'm not an economist, so I don't talk about bubbles or things like that because I don't know them. What I do have experience with is specific sort of businesses and uh, specific sort of startups that I've sort of either advised or invested in. This is how I sort of give advice is when I, when a young person comes to me and says, oh, I want to I want to have a startup. I want to I want to get involved in a startup. I want to lead a startup. I want to create a startup. To me, that's like somebody saying that I want to be in a band instead of saying I want to be a great musician. Right. When you say that you want to be in a band and instead of saying I want to figure out how to be a better musician, you're you're putting the cart before the horse. Don't don't be obsessed with having a startup. Be obsessed with figuring out how you specifically can add value, or if you don't know how to, you can add value to something right now, figure out what is the path to gaining expertise in something that you're interested in. Then figure out how to build a business around that expertise or that sort of competitive advantage. If someone came to me and said, I just want to be a startup, I want to raise money, I want to you know, I, I follow Gary Vaynerchuk on, uh, on, on Snapchat and I just, I feel tons of inspiration. I'm ready to grind. I just want to work and grind and, and, and be successful. I'd be awesome. That's, that's all amazing. It's great to have that motivation. What's your core expertise? What's, what's your value? What's your insight? Where's your beginning point? And like, oh, well, I don't know. I'll just, I'll just find that. Find that first is is my advice because that'll make you think more how you build a business out of it rather than just trying to be a scenester that wants to say hey i got a startup which to be honest not as cool as some people think it is <laughs> i mean I, I i again i'm not sure if I'm, if I'm supposed to cheerlead but i use the band analogy all the time myself i'm in a band um yeah don't be a band be yeah. great at playing a, an instrument or be great at writing or work on that yeah or, the band will come 
Yeah, exactly. You got to you got to be solving a problem for people. Um, so, I'm, so moving back to you know from free green, um, you know you 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 launch homemade modern. I mean, there are some obvious allegories between the between the two. Um, any lesson that you learned at free green that just from the beginning you're like, yeah, look, this is what I'm doing with homemade modern. I'm gonna make it better from the start. Right. So what I learned with free green is that distributing design as a type of media and monetizing it as a type of marketing is a really interesting concept that can be incredibly powerful. Um, I think the, the analogy that I always used, it was like publishing recipes for the physical world, right? So if you think about what a recipe is for chocolate chip cookies, it's a piece of media. It can be written down. It could be an audio uh, file. It could be a YouTube video, but it's a type of media that provides instructions. And you could probably do some product placement for Toll House or uh, chocolate chips too, or something like that. Um, so I think you just did some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think they're they're doing fine. Um, so that's that's sort of what I learned is that design could be packaged as media and uh, could be monetized as a type of marketing. Now, what I found is that with Free Green, I had opened myself up to the vulnerability of the whole marketplace being collapsed by the sort of mortgage industry, which has very little to do with physical design. So that was the I liked the concept, but. I sort of picked a market that had a few dependencies that were putting me in a relatively powerless position that I didn't want to do again. So I looked at the home improvement and DIY market and said, wow, I can do these types of, or produce this type of media content for how to make your own furniture or you know how to fix things around the house for a very small amount of capital, which is great for a startup. And the market's huge, also great for a startup. Um, so. I know that this sort of concept of sharing design is powerful and potentially lucrative. So let me try it with this broader market that at the same time has less of a barrier for entry for myself because making a YouTube video, not that expensive. And but what's interesting again, speaking of allegories here, you know, the beginning of your of your of your architecture firm, you are you know you're pitching yourself to the customer with a three million dollar house, and and here it's. You know, you have to go out there and pitch yourself to to big companies. You just signed a uh, you know, partnership with with Home Depot. Congratulations! How does how does a guy you know, and a and YouTube get in front of uh, you know of a major sponsor? Well, <laughs> hmm. so yeah, I, I was. Uh, I think well, YouTube's really interesting because the common sort of uh, thought process for most YouTubers is that you need to have a ton of subscribers and a ton of viewers in order to get big lucrative branded sponsored deals that's partly true but what they're doing wrong is that they're they're looking at their viewership as being the thing that's valuable when really it's the content creation that has the social proof of viewership is what's valuable right because if you think about it from like a big brand so if you're a home depot or a company like that any big company can put a big ad spend behind a facebook post and get viewers Facebook, Google, all these companies are making it easier and easier with their advertisement products for brands to sort of buy viewership. So if you're a YouTuber or an influencer on Instagram or any other thing, and if you're if you're really touting yourself as like, hey, I have a hundred thousand or a million followers or viewers, that's what makes me sort of valuable. No, because that can be replaced pretty artificially. What makes you valuable is that you earn those through producing content that people actually want to see. So if a brand was to actually produce that content, how do they do that? That's really expensive. So if you're 
a big company and you say, hey, we need to come up with really clever Instagram videos. How do they reverse engineer that process? They're probably going to go to a marketing agency, which is a bunch of meetings, really expensive. Everyone billed at an hourly rate, drop a big retainer. Then that marketing agency, they probably don't have anyone with like specific concrete expertise. And when I say concrete, I mean actually working with concrete in my case. (laughs) So they have to find to come up with like concepts, people that are experts in this area. Then they have to hire a video production team. Then they have to have a bunch of drafts back and forth about what's feasible. Then they have to present those drafts to the, the client. Then they have to produce one, edit it. So just to produce a 30 second or 15 second video, it might cost a brand hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in the end, they might get a video that nobody actually wants to watch because it's not driven from the expertise of people that know the mm-hmm, audience. Mm-hmm. So if you're an influencer, YouTube or Instagram or, or whatever uh, a platform, your views aren't as valuable, but your ability to produce content that has proven that people want to watch is what's valuable. Because if they hire you to produce that content, that's what's really, really powerful. So when I was sort of presenting early on to brands, I would never present around my viewership or subscriber count because, well, I didn't have one. Um, what I would do is I'd say, what do you normally spend on a commercial? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, well, I'll do it for way, way, way less, like <laughs> a 50th of that price. And I said, worst case scenario, you get video content that you can use on your social media channels. If it does well, you can boost it and use it as in your, your ads and things like that. And if you think that the production quality isn't great because I'm not a professional videographer, worst case scenario, you have a really great rough draft with some creative ideas that you can then pay to reshoot and have a much better uh, likelihood of uh, knowing that uh, you're at least on the right track uh, creatively. So I pitched them on production, not on viewership, because I knew that was the harder thing for them to sort of create. And if you, but if you go watch Ben's videos, the production values are tremendous. I, mean, I was watching, uh, I watched a few of them today with uh, with uh, my marketing team at my own office. Um, you know, you, it, the, the production is fantastic. I mean, you know, it's it's all um, very self explanatory, fun to watch. There are chickens in the back of some of them that I saw. Are those prop chickens or are those uh, they are they brought in? Did you have a casting director cast some specific chickens and? So that was a that was a project for a company called Quickcrete. Uh, which they're one of the leading uh, concrete producers in the U.S. And they wanted me to do some cool backyard DIY projects. So uh, I built a concrete fire pit in my parents' backyard as a, as a gift uh, for them. And their chickens made a little cameo sort of running in the, the background as I was digging. Apparently, when you're digging holes, uh, the chickens come by and they look for, for bugs that you might unearth. I think I think those chickens have made other appearances because I didn't watch that one today. I watched the one with the you're making the barbecue um, stand. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, the yeah, chickens the, were in that one too. I think the chickens have appeared in about three or four videos <laughs> and on a couple Instagram posts. They are incredibly fluffy, large, golden colored chickens that I think my parents named after the Golden Girls. <laughs> well, the, the the video quality is tremendous. The the one that I mean. I, my, my sense of it is that the 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 bucket stool kind of like launched the whole thing. I could be wrong. Um, did and then that's an amazing video to watch. And I'll be ma- I'm going to challenge. I'm going to I'm going to make a public commitment here. I'm going to make a bucket stool with uh, with my nice. with my daughter soon. Um, <clears throat> with my three and a half year old. I think my six month old isn't ready for the bucket stool yet. But uh, um, you know, did you have a sense that it would, that things would 
take off the way they did? I mean, did, did you have any sense of the, the arc of, of, of viewership? Was it just like, whoa, this thing is actually catching fire? Uh, I had no sense for how viewership or how I would build a subscriber base because I had no background in it. But I was operating under the concept that if I'm starting this sort of media business with no followers or subscribers, what is my sort of competitive advantage? How do I get more value out of every viewer that I have when I don't have millions, right? So the way I was thinking of that is call to action. So because I was thinking this as sort of a business right away, and I was thinking, if I have fewer viewerships, how do I tell brands that my viewership is really potent and a really great thing to invest in? So I said, well, call to action. Now, the great thing with design is that there's a built-in call to action. If you watch a video that teaches you how to do something and the end product looks cool or delicious, if it's food (laughs) or furniture, um, there's a good chance that you now are empowered with the technical information and you have a motivation to actually go and get it done because you're hungry or you want a nice piece of furniture for your home. So that call to action became the really important thing. And with the bucket stool, I was really trying to figure out how to make a video that would be would be funny, entertaining, and accessible and look easy to do uh, with ingredients that were relatively cheap, but the end product would be something somewhat useful. In this case, a three-legged stool with a concrete top. And what I wanted from that video was not just a million views, but I wanted a high percentage of people that did view it to take action and go and build that thing. Because I knew that if I had a high percentage for that action, then I could argue this is a form of media that should have ad spend put behind it, right? So we did the the bucket stool video. Um, it was like a 60 to 75 second video clip. It's really easy. You put two and a half to three inches of concrete in the bottom of a bucket, stick in three sticks, wait 24 to 48 hours, pop it out, and you have a three-legged stool. Uh, and that project has now been built on six different continents, even, even some small businesses that have emerged that design and build that, uh, the design and sell or build and sell that uh, specific uh, product. So what I was able to take with that thing is even when it only had 100,000 views, is I had thousands of people that had either emailed me photos of their finished bucket stool or posted them on Instagram, and I could show conversion, right? Here I am mm. as a small-time influencer barely, I think like nine to 10,000 subscribers at the time on YouTube, but I was able to get a lot of people, over a thousand people around the world to show that they had built, physically taken time (laughs) to build the thing that I had published as a type of digital media. Um, So I was able to show this this call to action uh, capability of publishing design. Well, Maya and I will send you a picture when we're, when we're done with ours. Awesome. <laughs> the uh, so I mean, I, I imagine something flipped at some point where maybe you went from from pitching a brand, maybe our brand showing up at your door now, saying, "Ben, can you do this with us?" Yes. Uh, once you get over sort of a hundred thousand uh, subscribers on YouTube, you your email inbox becomes spammed uh, to death with sort of brands offering. You know, anywhere from like one to three thousand dollars for sort of a, a placement or mention of their product into it. Um, and what's, I mean, it's not bad. It's not 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 bad money at all for how long it takes uh, to do. But what's kind of unfortunate about that, and what's uh, is that it's often coming from an agency in between. And so when you talk to the agency and you're like, hey we have a really great idea how to actually integrate this more authentically into it so it's serving the audience better and serving the product better. And because it's in the agency, there's no real interest in making a better advertising product. Um, 
So that's why I try to work with the brands directly wherever possible or work with their agency of record because then we're not just doing a one-off video with a live read for, you know, uh, I think Audible's was one of our sponsors that came through an agency. Mm. And we had, I, it was actually a product that I used, which was awesome. Cause I was like, oh, mm. Audible's is great. Mm. Um, but they insisted on this really long, cumbersome read. I'm like, look, let's just spread this out over a few things. Every time I do a, a video for the next five videos, I'll do a, cause I'm always have headphones on while I'm building stuff and it's often listening to an audiobook. Um, how about I just do a little sort of like tag on the, over the, over the video and text just saying, by the way, Ben's listening to this book on audio. So it's, it's completely authentic. It's organic. It's truthful. It's, uh, uh, enthusiastic because I actually do use it. Um, they're like, no, 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 this is what we want. We want this mm -hmm. live read. So the read took up way too much time and it became the most like, uh, is the most highest proportion of down votes or dislikes to any video I had. <laughs> and we could have done them, s uh, such a better product, but because the agency was just trying to get, get it done what they wanted to get done, they have no interest in making it better. So that's why I try to either work with brands over a campaign of videos. Like let's not do one. Let's do 10. Let's do 10 over the course of the year so we can actually experiment and really create an advertising product that isn't annoying, that isn't in the way, that's actually in the service of the viewers and the brand. Well, I want a good friend of mine uh, who actually used to be a uh, senior executive with VFA, Eric Caballero, recently took over managing Audible for Amazon. So I'm going to pass that along to him. I'll have, I'll have yeah, to listen fan. to the podcast. Um, so, you know, content's like a beast. How do you, how do you keep going? Oh, I only do what I want. <laughs> that's, that's that's the easiest way. Uh, we can. I don't believe that people, for the most part, I don't believe that they're sort of, uh, you know, lazy and hardworking people. I know that when I'm not motivated, I'm incredibly lazy. I just want to play video games and you know, watch Netflix and you know, procrastinate, do whatever I can, you know, look at funny websites, uh, whatever I can to not work. Um, when I am motivated. Uh, I want to get right out of bed in the morning, uh, slug down coffee, and then just get right to sort of building, designing, and doing those things. So I I don't really look at a lot of, uh, a ton of analytics or sort of, you know, metrics about, oh, I should be producing this kind of content or this, or that I have to produce this many types a week. I know that if I put myself in a situation where I'm highly motivated because I'm engaged with what I'm producing, I know that I'll be prolific. And I know that if I'm being prolific, that probably good things will come out of that huge amount of content. So in, in this particular type of business, I can, uh, where so much of the sort of revenue is driven by my own sort of, uh, how many videos I produce. I know that sort of catering to my own interest is in my best financial interest. So this is a great question for us to wrap on then, you know, it, <laughs> because your last question kind of said, I don't have a specific goal for viewership. I, I guess you're saying your your, your specific goal is, is just personal creativity. But I mean, do you have a do, do you have a goal for for homemade modern? You know, what's the number one goal you would have for homemade modern for the next five years? The 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 number one goal is to move up one more platform, right? So what I do right now is I'll, I'll produce whenever I produce a design, I'm producing content for almost all the digital platforms. So. If I design a, let's see, what am I designing right now? Um, ah, so right now I am designing, uh, <laughs> I'm 
I'm working on a series of DIY exercise equipment, right? So I just designed this bench that is like for bench pressing, but it actually looks like a piece of furniture in your home. And it's a little bit silly, but I think it's kind of cool. Because if you live in a loft, like you don't really want to have a whole home gym there and all this sort of cheesy, broed out, you know, exercise equipment. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a fan, but I thought it was super cool. So I'm designing this, this weight bench. So it can transform from a normal piece of furniture into something you can do bench pressing on. So I'll produce a YouTube video. I'll produce a blog post. I'll have 15-second videos for Instagram. Uh, I'll have uh, still images that go on Pinterest that link to the blog post. It also has the video, right? So, and it'll be, you know, containing, uh, uh, I'll be showing how to use a QuickCrete's, uh, uh, QuickCrete 5000 product. It's like the main uh, uh, sponsor in it, right? So I'm producing content that has like a truthful and authentic use of, of a great product for all these digital platforms, Pinterest, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, so the only platform that's sort of missing right now is long format video, Netflix, mm. Hulu, or something like that. So that's the that's the goal is if I'm producing design content, I should be producing it for every single platform at the same time. So really it's trying to figure out how to sort of uh, work with the financing and the increased sort of production uh, requirements for producing for that format. So it might be something like, I produce that individual project for sort of YouTube and these other things, but then three projects about sort of equipment become part of like a, of a TV style show that goes on Netflix or uh, HGTV or something like that. So that's the current goal. And one of the things that I'm working on in 2017 is if I'm going to take these types of design actions, I might as, and produce content from it. It makes more sense from an efficiency standpoint to produce them for all platforms at once. Hmm. So that's the goal is to figure out how to produce for all platforms with product integration at once. Well, fantastic. I was giving you till 2021 here, but you're saying you're working on 2017. So I think we'll have some next steps in 2017. That's amazing. Well, we'll look forward to it. I, I certainly enjoyed watching the videos, learning about you. It's great to have, I mean, this is the Smart People Should Build Things podcast. It's great to have a real builder of, of actual physical product, but also of companies. And we didn't even get to chat, chat about your, uh, your the buildings you've developed. So I mean, there's so much here. Um, thanks for being a great guest, and, and hopefully we can we can bring you back once the story. Uh, I mean, the story is going to continue, so hopefully we can bring you back. Thank you, my pleasure. Thanks, Ben. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.